What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Dear Governor is a production of iHeartMedia and Three Mutts Media. If you are moved by Jarvis Masters and his 30-year struggle on San Quentin's death row, and you'd like to support his cause, please consider signing a petition on his behalf. Visit freejarvis.org slash podcast to sign your name to an open letter to California Governor Gavin Newsom. Dear Governor Newsom. Dear Mr. Governor Newsom. This is an open letter to Governor Gavin Newsom. Dear Governor Newsom. Though physically confined by his 9x4 cell for over 40 years, Jarvis Masters has managed to reach far beyond the thick walls and razor wires of San Quentin. Due to his unique perspective, strong opinions, and prolific writings, he has become a sought-after contributor for various social justice and Buddhist-oriented organizations. Recently, the Awake Network and Shambhala Publications hosted a free online event, the Black and Buddhist Summit that attracted over 10,000 participants. Pamela Ayoyetunde, a pastoral counselor, chaplain, and co-editor of Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race, Resilience, Transformation, and Healing, hosted the summit and invited Jarvis to participate. There are so many Buddhist authors out there. Why Jarvis? What drew Mm -hmm. you to Jarvis? Yeah. You know, I think I first heard about Jarvis when I worked for a short period of time with the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. This was back in the late 80s or early 90s. Okay. And then encountered his writings again when I was in the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies chaplaincy program Mm. in the early 2000s. And then as we were thinking about what subjects we wanted to address during the summit, I said, well, you know, the fact that there's so many African-Americans in prison uh, and we know that you know, people learn uh, to hone their skills, uh, writing skills in prison. People often find 
uh, a new way of life or religion or spirituality in prison. There must be uh, African descended Buddhist practitioners who are writers in prison and then boom, you know, Jarvis came to mind. And so that's how. And so we reached out through you. Yeah. He, he is a um, he's a prolific writer and thinker for sure. I remember I was in a Buddhist gathering and was talking with someone and we were talking about, oh, you know, the black and Buddhist summer that was so wonderful. And this person very slowly raised up her copy of Finding Freedom and held it like this and then slowly brought it down and just said, wow, that was some of the most significant Dharma teaching I have ever received. And this person is a Dharma teacher. I think now more than ever in my life anyway, thanks to the work of Brian Stevenson and others, that people are accepting the fact that there have been many people wrongly accused, many people spending decades behind bars for something they didn't do. And so maybe that's on the other side of, you know, society becoming more violent. We're also waking up to the injustices Mm -hmm. of our criminal justice system. And maybe there's a little more grace around that. Following is the full conversation that Jarvis and I had, which was streamed during the Black and Buddhist Summit, in which he shares his thoughts about how Buddhism plays an important role in the lives of Black Americans who are or have been incarcerated. I am Jarvis Masters. I've been in San Quentin for close to 40 years, a few months short of that. I became a Buddhist in 1991, I think, or... 92. I've written two books, one, Finding Freedom, and the other is That Bird Has My Wings. I have various teachers, and all my teachers have given me the benefit of their experience in the last 30 years, and I've been using those experiences in prison as much as they fit the circumstances that we live in. How did you get introduced to Buddhism back in 91 or 90? How did you find it? I was waiting to see if I was going to receive a death sentence for the death of a sergeant, Sergeant Bursfield at San Quentin. That occurred in 1985. And my friend and and teacher, one of my teachers, uh, Melody Armachild, thought because I was down there in the holding tank that I might want to read a magazine that was familiar to her, and it was called Inquiring Mind. And inside Inquiring Mind, they had this little clip, and it said free book, and the name of the book was Life in Relationship to Death. And I sat there and read it for almost a week while why the jury's in deliberation and I just thought, hey, you know, let me try this. You know, life and relationship to death, you know, it was where I was, you know. I wasn't there because because of my trial. I was there. Be- I, I realized that, na- that name because of my whole life history. 
And I took heart to that, and eventually I got a free copy of the book, and I wrote to thank them. And a woman named Lisa Leghorn uh, responded, and we created correspondence. And at some point I realized she was a senior student of who is now my teacher, Tuku Repache. And eventually he, you know, he came down to visit me. Uh, a few times, and at some point, I was given the empowerment. It's a ceremony that was just basically to introduce me to Vajrayana Buddhism, and I became a student of that practice, and I was given a practice called the Red Tar Practice, and I thought that practice, as I began to set with it was a very clear, honest way of opening me up to see where freedom really is. What is the and Red Tower I, practice? Red Tower practice is a guide, a way of opening the door of confronting our suffering, the suffering of all beings, and it's a prayer that allows us to, you know, work on that, work on opening many, many doors that has been locked. They were locked for me particularly because there was a lot of things I was in denial. There was a lot of things that I didn't pay attention to that my life gave some purpose for. And I really, really got into it. I I thought it as a, a, a perfect guide for where I was going in my life. Why? What What was, was it about Buddhism in particular that, that drew you in? Oh, it was the opening gate. It opened a lot of doors. It opened a lot of gates for me to sit with. It was a practice with, you know, that had meditation, a lot of meditation. It was a practice that that dealt with me and the suffering that I was dealing with, you know, the human suffering that I was dealing with. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And it taught me how to begin the process of dissolving those those things, those obstacles that has been in my life. What was that like, Jarvis? Like when you first meditated? So you're you're sitting there and you're waiting to hear the verdict back on the death sentence. Walk us through your experience with meditation. Was it frustrating at first? Did you take to it like a fish to water? No, I just I just learned how to sit down and and do probably the opposite. I just sat down and started thinking. That was a good thing for me because I had to learn how to sit down first before I learned how to meditate. I was a very angry person and I didn't particularly think sitting down was, you know, fulfilling for me at that time. So I just had to learn how to sit down and and sit down with me, you know, and mm-hmm. That took a while, you know. There was a lot of times where I was bored with it, but I made a commitment to myself to just sit there. And things start opening up. Gates start opening up. Windows start becoming with more fresh air than I had ever felt before. Mm. And that was a beautiful time for me. It really was. And I was dealing with San Quentin, and I was dealing with death row, and I was dealing with... How did I get to this point in my life? And I start realizing that we all suffer to some degree or another and that I was not alone. And one of the things my teacher, one of my teachers taught me 
was that, you know, you're not the worst case, you know. Uh, there's many people who have far more worse problems than you. And that was a that was a guiding light for me to not think of me for me, but just think of all beings and all people who suffer way more than I do. And I really felt a companionship with that, you know. Was it difficult at first? I mean, did you have any resentment? Because to tell you that there are people worse off than you, here you are potentially on death row. How did that sit with you? I learned Buddhism pretty much at the feet of my teacher. So I was really, really guided. Very, I was very trained. I, I had the benefit of really, really having a sangha, a, a community, and I had members of that community visit me often. So I never went outside what I was trained to sit with. Was it difficult? I think it was not in, in, in retrospect. Was it boring? Of course that was, yes, it was boring, very boring. For me, I just had the benefit of having teachers all around me. My age, older than me, folks who've been into Buddhism 20 years before I had. And these people really, really trained, trained me, taught me a lot. But more than that, they taught me how to teach myself. Mm -hmm. And that was something I never really, really had the ability to learn how to teach myself. You can find all kinds of teachers, you know, and all kinds of teachers want you to think like they do or practice like they do. In my community, taught me how to think for myself, taught me how to become my own practitioner because mm -hmm. they recognized that I was on San Quentin's death row. And for many of them, they couldn't even fathom the thought of being physically on death row. Mm -hmm. So for them, they thought, wow, he's really... He really is suffering. He is in that sea of suffering. He is facing death, real death. And they made me realize that, but they also made me realize that that is nothing close to being the end of mm -hmm. who I was. You know, it was the beginning of who I became. Um, I, I just had the opportunity to have some serious people around me. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. 
Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. So you learned the first step was to learn to sit with yourself. Can you describe what that looked like? I assume you sat in your nine by four cell and just sat on the ground. Yeah, I just sat on the ground. I mean, I didn't want to sit on no cushion. I wanted to sit on the ground because I really wanted to feel what my body was going through. You know, I really wanted to feel that sense of suffering. I didn't want to make this place comfortable. And I was determined not to do that. I was determined not to hide behind, you know, being a Buddhist and having a Buddhist community as my way of getting through all the doors that I needed to. At what point did sitting with yourself evolve into a meditation practice and what did that look like? Well, I thought I thought one of the reasons, and this is in retrospect, because this happened, you know, 30 years ago. So um, I think I was trying to ground out the noise that became my my sense of refuge. I was really trying to ground out the noise because San Quentin is a very, very, very loud place. So I was trying to ground out the noise, and a lot of things came to mind that one practitioner or another or a friend had said to me, and I sat with that, you know, just out of curiosity, you know. And then I started getting some guidance about meditation, you know, and those particular instructions. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. A lot. You have 60 seconds remaining. Oh, uh, excuse me. A lot of them did not fit San Quentin. So I had to figure out a way to make my practice fit the conditions that I was living in. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a lot of room to explore, to come with a genuine heart, but to explore how do you get along with people being a Buddhist? I mean, you being a Buddhist and no one else, you know? Cause right. then there was very few Buddhists. So I had to figure out how to do that, you know? And that became sort of like a practice, you know? You can have your meditation practice, and you can have your sitting, and you can have your instruction. But San Quentin gave me a new way of thinking about Buddhism. Yeah, it gave me a new way of thinking about Buddhism because I was feeling pressure on one end, the inmates, the, um, the guards, because I had, as I said, was on the crime scene. You know, I the murder, death of Sergeant Burstfield happened on San Quentin, and now I'm on San Quentin, and there was a lot of hatred uh, from the guards, and there was a lot of a lot of people thinking that I was running away from being who I was by accepting the idea of using my time to meditate. So I had. Mm sort of like wall-to-wall enemies, so to speak. So I had to figure out 
what was I going to do if I was going to stay with this practice? I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat. It was very, very hard and a difficult process. But one that I thought really, really opened doors for me, opened many doors for me. As an example, for the first two, maybe three years, maybe five years that I became a practitioner, all I was learning from San Quentin is what not to do. I never felt like I was being inspired to learn what to do. What do you mean learning what not to do? Well, I get I see guys yelling and screaming at guards, and I said, wow, this is what I look when I do that, you know. Mm-hmm. I see guards, you know, in a lot of pain and suffering, and I said, wow, this guard may be going home to his son. I would see violence, and I say, wow, you know, uh, how can I participate in compassion? You know, mm-hmm. so it was those kind of experiences that I was constantly learning, you mm-hmm. know. And as I figure my way through these things, people start calling me a real serious practitioner. And I never took serious to that. What my whole trip was is to find the gates that was just going to open me up to understanding what compassion and how compassionate works inside a prison system. Mm. Uh, and it was hard. It was hard. It was, it was very hard, you know. I was confronted with a lot of violence. I was in a shoe unit, security housing unit, and solitary you know, confinement. Yeah, yeah, they they put long words to it to deny what it is, and a lot of people were in there for serious things, you know, murder, assault, serious stuff, you know. And one of the things that broke me through, because I keep talking about opening gates and opening doors, was the first story I wrote called Scars. And this is a, if you read Finding Freedom, story about inmates. And I noticed the scars and whips on their back. And I'd never seen those before, but I had my own, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because they were pumping iron, lifting weights in the middle of this hot sun, they they just stuck out, you know. They, they were whips. They were not just scars. They were serious whips. Mm-hmm. And I just had to figure out where did, the hell did you get these things, you know? And they all told me. But what got me more than anything, uh, more than the story was the expression they gave to the story. Mm-hmm. It was like a proud thing to have these scars and whips. It was to say that I did that, been there before. And I Mm -hmm. realized I had my own. I had my own. And I looked at my my hand where I remember the counselors made us compete while I was a juvenile. And they would put a cigarette between our two thumbs. And they waited to see who could stay there the longest. I I forgot about that, you know. But then when I looked around and I started seeing that, I went to my cell and I realized that I have the same thing. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And, you know, when I felt like I had the same thing, I felt an opportunity to write about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this story, The Scars. And somehow the inmates, the prisoners, the convicts, got a hold of that story. 
I can't remember if I shared it with them or they just found it somewhere. And at first I said, oh my God, what the fuck did I do here? Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to realize they all accepted that story as the true story of their life history. Mm -hmm. It was told from someone who have that own history and there's just a spirit an acceptance to it, you know, by just using certain words and, you know, instead of using abuse and neglect and all these things, there's other words for it, you know. And so I understood that language would be able to give me a whole lot of access to people. And like any other trade or, you know, you know, a welder would learn all the words that tells you how to weld. And I had to figure out what was the voice of San Quentin, that mm-hmm. role. And that's been a practice for me ever since. It's not just you learn it and you forget about it. It's a it's a day-to-day practice. You were out on the yard and you saw these guys and they all had similar scars and similar life stories. You had the language of Buddhism to to deal with that history. Did, did you share that with the guys that were out there? Were there other guys out there that were Buddhist practitioners? Did they look at you like you were strange that you had this? I had never known a Buddhist practitioner on on those yards back then. Mm -hmm. I've known people who would meditate, you know, but I never knew them take the practitioner acceptance, empowerment, ceremonies, and, you know, the others uh, as a way of changing their whole life cycle. It was just me jive talking, talking, you know, directly to their scars and directly to all of our egos. And it was something that I looked at and realized I found the permission to write about prison in Buddhism. It was something that I really, really began to realize my purpose. My purpose for being here is to be more of an engaged Buddhist, Mm -hmm. not so much on the academic side, but more so as a practitioner, as someone who's engaged in trying to find the joy and happiness within, you know, each of us, you know, and, you know, family does that. Writing to family, writing to our nephews and our sons and kids was a real experience. And I thought a lot of us didn't realize how fortunate we were. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I need to say this also. I was one of the first people who dealt with me. I dealt with me, and the only way I could have, and this is in retrospect, the only way I could have done what I was doing was I had to learn how to accept it for myself, too. And that was the heart of my practice. That's where I was taught, trained to practice from. And I had years to sit with, you know, and I sit with those years now. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. You talked about your ego and when you came into prison... This is five, ten years prior to Sergeant Birchfield being murdered. You admitted to being angry and bitter and frustrated based on the life that you had been handed. How did Buddhism fundamentally change you and how you dealt with your own ego? Um, I remember going to trial and... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. This is just one way. It could have been other ways. What stands out for me, you know, I learned how to cry. You know, I never did that. I learned how to hear the tears in other people's speech and their language. Someone come up to me and says, my mother just died. But it ain't no thing. You know, I had a lot of years with her. You know, no, you didn't. You know, because you're living with her now. And... I was able to learn how to express that and have the respect of telling that, saying that. And then I felt, you know what, I felt responsible for all this stuff now. What I was learning was teaching me how to become a serious practitioner without understanding that that's where I was headed. When you started investigating Buddhism and and the practice of it, were there resources outside of what Melody Irmachild gave you? I mean, because this was 30 years ago. So was there a Buddhist chaplain there that could help you learn? There was no such thing as a Buddhist teacher in San Quentin. You know, religion in San Quentin, and I think it's probably in other prisons too, is very territorial. Catholicism, Islam, these faiths, you know, are well-established, well inside the prison system. Buddhism was like, where's this going, you know? Is this a real religion? We're not going to allow you to practice this in a formal setting because it's not, it don't fit the bill of being a real religion. They didn't recognize it. They didn't acknowledge it. They didn't do any of those things. A good example would be when I had my empowerment ceremony, when my teacher, Represhe, came to give me my power in ceremony, they kept me behind a glass window. Mm. 
all the rituals and all the little things that you would need to go through an empower ceremony mm-hmm. were not given to us. They didn't acknowledge that. But now, if I wanted to get baptized, they escort you right outside the prison, right out the adjustment center, and you'll go be baptized somewhere. But you know what? I did not mind those things. I wasn't smart enough, or I didn't take my practice serious enough to see the discrimination in that. And, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons why I didn't do that is because Repuchet didn't give me no excuse. He wouldn't allow no excuse. <laughs> so I didn't. I just gave up on, you know, whatever frustrations I had with that. You're wasting time. You know, his attitude was you're wasting time. How did the guys with you on the East Block take to the fact that you, were you like an, a Buddhist elder to them? Or did they find, did they accept you for who you were? They have this saying, and I may have interpreted it the wrong way, so forgive me if I have, but I always heard that term, kill the Buddha, you know? At some point, you have to kill the Buddha, and I understand it, but maybe I did not understand but I definitely used it, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I definitely put my own twist to it, and what I mean by putting my twist to it was that I stopped trying to act like a Buddhist. The Buddha that I would try to imitate sitting down, mm-hmm. the one that would, you know, hold his fingers together and try to meditate, <laughs> the one who has some kind of deep realization, the kind of people who thought they found enlightenment. I stopped being those people. I stopped reading the books. I was left on my own. And I think what my teacher taught me is how to be on my own in a way of bringing a, a more number of people in a community together, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was me learning how to not talk like a Buddhist and be a Buddhist, mm-hmm. not having all the academic skills, readings to be a Buddhist. I mean, those are pitfalls. All those are what gets you in trouble. You know, I was keeping my friendships. That's all. I was trying to keep people from going to the hole or being... Um, um, uh, extracted from their cells or maced or shot or all those things. Has the Buddhist community grown in the last 30 years? Oh, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about it? You know, I think the ministration has most ministrations in our nation's history. You have 60 seconds remaining. Accepted the idea that it it helps the overall institution to have or to have someone come in die prison and teach people how to sit and meditate. It's been a benefit to the prison administrations, uh, at least the ones I know, to be able to do that. So it's it's a it's an important aspect of understanding what helps prisons and prisoners find peace, find that inner peace and they're not assault guards or anything like that. So it's big, it's a huge it's very huge now. You find Buddhist communities in almost every prison. Okay, so the group that you are talking to right now, it's the 2021 Black Buddhist Conference. It's sponsored by Shambhala, who is the publisher of your book, Finding Freedom, which just got re-released. And they'd like you to talk specifically to how Buddhism plays an important role in the lives of a lot of Black Americans who have been incarcerated or who are there now. You know, 
And, and what I know, my own experience is, and it's all been in San Quentin, and it's mostly all been on death row. So I don't have a lot of what this panel might have as their own experiences. But for me, I think Buddhism and this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. In relationship to being black and a Buddhist or being black and a teacher is is territorial. I've never ever saw a teacher of African descent teaching Buddhism in prison. It mm -hmm. is unheard of in my own experience. But you know, I'm isolated. You know, I'm in I'm on death row and I'm isolated. The condemn units in San Quentin's death row are very isolated. The panel that this is being presented to, they are both Black Buddhist practitioners, but also non-practitioners. So people who maybe identify with Islam or maybe identify with Christianity. Can Buddhism or practices therein add to their own religious practices? I think so. I don't see why not. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know all the tenets of these various faiths, but I can't imagine someone saying that I need to cultivate compassion. I need to be of some service to to quell violence wherever I am. I, I shouldn't have a problem understanding the nature of suffering and where that leads. You know, I, I, I can't imagine those various tenets not playing a part in all faiths. Mm -hmm. you know? But if you get hooked on the name... You leave a lot of people behind, no matter what faith you're in. Yeah, the name is a hook to me, you know, and I started using that phrase when I was talking to you earlier about killing the Buddha. Mm -hmm. the, the name Buddha is a hook. It creates confusion, you know, and it creates chaos, and it denounces, you know, this truth. To me, it feels like when you use these terms, you're using something against people's attraction. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Martin Luther King walked with all face. And I didn't see no problem with that, you know. And no one's seen a problem with that. Probably the FBI did, but no one else, you know. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, but we can walk together. You know, we can sit together. You know, we can use our own particular practices to make the world better, you know, to end mm -hmm. the suffering of all men. You know, that's, yeah. that's perfect to me. And, you know, I was raised in a Baptist church when I was small. So yeah. um, I tried my best to get out of that place hmm. um, because I was young and I just, you know, I, 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 I like any kid back in the, in the back then, way back then, you know, you rather ride your bike. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you're ready to play marbles or something, you know. <laughs> Getting all dressed up and they putting all that grease on your face and you sitting up, sitting with all these old people and somebody, <laughs> somebody and some you see a every time you walk in this church you see a casket sitting right down the aisle. I didn't want that. That was not yeah. my bike, you know, my right. my skateboard. Yeah, yeah. So So we talked about your book. Finding Freedom being re-released -re this past year, and then David Sheff's book, The Biography, The Buddhist on Death Row, 
was released several months ago. It's such a beautiful book. And then the new anthology, Black and Buddhist. So how does it feel for you to see growing interest in the experience of Black Buddhists around the country? I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I remember a while back, sort of when I was still in an angry state, and I said, you know what? If, you know, I went to my teacher. I went to Lisa, one of the senior students of Repoche, and I said, you know what? Why isn't there black Buddhists? You know, how can all mm-hmm. these people be reincarnated as Asian? You know, Tibetan. How's that true? That don't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know, you mean to tell me everybody who has something that created a, a recycle of life, as we would call it? a rebirth, they all end up being Tibetan or Chinese or Japanese or Asian. How, how does that happen? What do you guys get that from? You mm-hmm. know, that don't make, that don't jive with me. And, I, and for me, I used to just come straight out with it, you know. Uh, yeah. And, and she said to me, she said, now I'll never forget it. She said, Martin Luther King was a Buddhist. Malcolm X was a Buddhist. This is where you find your teachers. Your teachers are not, to, you know, always Tibetan. They are the community leaders in your community. They are the black teachers who teaches kids. They are there. They yeah. just don't get hooked up on the name Buddhist. You hear Buddhist because that's their name and that's their faith, you know, in Asia or somewhere else. But Trust me, they're there, and they're mm-hmm. practicing, and they're teaching, and that just that was a life-changing moment for me. You have 60 seconds remaining. Because I needed to hear that answer. Yeah. If I had not known that answer, I would always have hiccups about what's going on with this, you know. Yeah. So to go back to what you were saying, I, I think it's a good thing. I, I really do. Yeah. Well, you know, the folks at Shambhala and the summit's host, Ayo Yatunde, mm-hmm. wanted to express their gratitude because this is awesome. It's going to be an amazing event and uh, wish you could be there physically, but maybe next year, maybe 2022, we'll have you keynote <laughs> the event yeah. and, and physically hey, be know, there. What I do you can, say? That would be great. That would be great. But if I can ask them for a favor, you know. Uh-huh. I would say to them, if it's all possible, I would love for that panel to bring as much of what they're speaking to inside San Quentin. I think that would be a very powerful statement. Mm -hmm. I mean, San Quentin has two cable stations that are specifically used to address or to speak out of other places that inmates may not be allowed to go or not have privy to have access. You know, if you are in isolation confinement, they they have church services on that station. Uh, if you're in education and you can't get to, a, you know, a school, a, you know, the prison schoolhouse, they run school via television, the cable station. And to have this African community of Buddhists and non-Buddhists appear on those stations would say a whole lot yep. to the benefit 
that is a huge step. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And well, I'll work with them. I'll do what I can do to help help facilitate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be great. Okay. So, you got it. You done did good. And I ain't blown smoke. No, I ain't so tickled. <laughs> This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Boy, oh, he's telling me I have to go now. Okay. So, all right. Hey, so take care. Okay, you too. We'll talk soon. All right. All right. Okay. Bye bye. Next week, we'll hear from Jarvis's lead attorney at Kirkland & Ellis, as well as from some of you who have reached out to Jarvis directly through our hotline with questions and curiosities. Special thanks to Pamela Ayoyatunde. Check out her latest book, Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race, Resilience, Transformation, and Healing. This episode was written and produced by Donna Fazari and myself, Corny Cole. Our theme song, Sentenced, is compliments of the band Stick Figure from their album Set in Stone. Stu Sternbach composed the original music. Nate Dufort did the sound design. For more information on Jarvis and to find out how you can follow his case and support his cause, please visit freejarvis.org. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.